so I don't think we've had these recorded on Sunday since Martin was last on the podcast. Holy shit. <laughs> like, as a regular, not as... Not as a guest. A stand-in. Yeah, as, as a regular. Because <laughs> two years ago, he, he was a stand-in for me. Around yeah. this time, actually. I'm, I'm not sure that Martin still exists. No, he does. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm Facebook friends with him, so, I mean, yes, he does actually exist, but... In the DC United, in the, in the in the DC universe, I'm not sure that he exists. Uh, I think recently he, uh, what was it? Oh, the game that was close to Father's Day. It was like him and his family and his father all at the game together, or something like that. Yeah, he it. resurfaces now again just to prove that he exists. Right. Just yeah. as a like monthly reminder that he is still uh, around. Martin, you know, maybe grabs the blood of a unicorn, drinks it down a little bit. Martin, Shows what we're okay. to, Martin, what we're trying to say is we miss you. <laughs> In our own way, that is exactly what we're trying right. to say, Martin. Um, well, let's get to it then. Hey, hey, welcome in. <laughs> this is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. I am Adam Taylor, joined as always by Jason Anderson and Ben Bromley. We are all from blackandredunited.com, which I should say is the site founded by Martin Schatzer, who is probably but may or may not still be with us on this mortal coil. Uh, We have a big, big show for you tonight, but you're used to that by now. Uh, We're going to talk about DC United's 1-0 win over the Chicago Fire in the middle of the week. Uh, We're going to talk about the scoreless draw in Toronto over the weekend. We're going to be talking about Tuesday's upcoming game at the Philadelphia Union for the U.S. Open Cup. We're going to be talking about DC United's other upcoming road game at Seattle on Friday. Uh, which will be on national TV on Unimas. And we're going to be talking about the Women's World Cup because why the hell not? We're talking about everything else that's happening in the world right now. Uh, Yay, Supreme Court. Uh, Before we do anything, though, Jason Anderson, what are you drinking? Uh, We no longer have time to make uh, drinks. That it's are true. complicated. As soon as we finish one podcast, we start the next. Yes, there's no That's time. That's where we are at this point. There's no time for anything. Uh, sleep, uh, cleanliness, feeding yourself, all of it's out the window at this point. Uh, thank you, MLS Schedule Maker. Uh, so I have a can of Yingling Lager because that is all the time <laughs> I have. I don't have time to think. I don't have time for anything. I have time for uh, respectable cheap beer. See, I I have just enough time to come up with a made-up backstory for why I'm drinking whatever it is I pulled out of the fridge. Um, (laughs) And so I'm going to say that uh, I have a penchant for timeliness here, and I am drinking Omegang uh, from Cooperstown, New York. I'm drinking their uh, Dark Saison, which is uh, Game of Thrones-branded beer called Three-Eyed Raven because I am very timely, and two weeks after the end of the, this, the latest season of Game of Thrones, which actually never featured the Three-Eyed Raven, because that storyline was on hiatus for the entire season. So um, you're not timely I, at all. Thank you. That's the joke, Ben. Yes. Thank you. What are you drinking, Ben? So uh, that I may step on your joke. A Manhattan. <laughs> you're drinking a Manhattan. Yeah. Ben's defenses did not make a joke. <laughs> what what whiskey are you drinking in your Manhattan, Ben? Uh, Evan Williams Green. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's cheap. They've reduced the price on it at the uh, Virginia ABC store. 
Haha, you have to buy your booze from the government. Sorry, I had to do something. I had to do something. The government pays my pays my salary. That's So basically I'm paying it to myself. Yeah, you're like one of the workers at Mount Rushmore during the depression in the work camp. You'd get a salary from the government and spend it all at the government store. All right, this has just taken a terrible turn. I apologize to all our listeners. Let's, it's, let's it's get my, to the soccer. My fault. my fault. It's my fault. I'll, I'll I'm not to blame. I'll I'm accept eject- putting the blame <laughs> on Ben. I'm, I'm ejecting myself from the podcast. Bye, guys. <laughs> all right. Bye, Ben. Uh, DC United is currently on an 87-game road trip right now. Uh, they, they, they started it this week, this past week, with four points from the first two games, so not a bad start. They went 180 minutes, conceded zero goals, only scored one. They beat Chicago one nothing, as I mentioned earlier. Drew uh, 0-0 with Toronto. The one goal was a Connor Doyle wonder strike in the second half up in Bridgeview, Illinois against the Fire. Ben, that Doyle goal, though. That's what, that, that's what I have in my notes, is that Doyle goal, though. I mean, yeah, it's what we had all... It's more than we had all hoped for from Connor Doyle for the past year and a half. He had a uh, decent first season in D.C. in the season that shall not be named, uh, and then he kind of disappeared in 2014, which was uh, to be expected. And I think he's finally starting to put it together a little bit. I mean, him on the wing is pretty good, and... He, like every other uh, DC United winger, loves to uh, cut into the middle, and if you let most of our wingers uh, rip a shot, they can put a good shot in on frame, and that was one of the best we've seen all season. I mean, if you you rank all of DC United's goals so far this year, that's one or two, probably, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that was a shot that broke physics. You watch it, and it just... People were convinced it took a deflection because it was rising faster when it went into the goal than it was when it left his foot. It was an un, unreal goal. And and I think you're right. The move to midfield has just been a, a massive boost for Doyle. I think he's better when he has time and space on the ball, which you have more of on the outside than you do when you're battling with center backs in the, in the middle as a forward. And so I think that that's actually helped him. And word came out through through the press this week that Ben Olsen and the coaches have been telling him, take a shot. You have a good shot. You're one of the best finishers in practice. Put it on the field in a game. And he, he finally did. And hopefully we see, you know, assuming we see more of him on the field, which we will because we have 27 games in the next week, uh, hopefully we see more of that kind of, killer instinct and finishing ability from from Connor Doyle. Uh, so, so, Jason, one thing I want to talk about with the, I guess the only other thing I want to talk about with the Chicago game, because we have so many games to get to tonight, uh, is, is the tactics. We haven't talked formations much on this show for a while, for good reason, because Ben Olsen has finally settled into a, a base formation that he goes to game in and game out, but he switched up a little bit in Chicago, went right back to the 4-4-2 against Toronto, but in Chicago, he rolled out a 4-1-4-1 that had, honestly, a surprising midfield triangle of Coria, Silva, and Halstey, 
would not have expected those first two names to be in that central midfield triangle. What, what United didn't dominate possession, but they were they were in this game the whole time. They were pressing, uh, or, or at least pressuring, a lot in this game. What did you think of the the tactical shift that Olsen rolled out? Um, I, I I kind of think it was out of necessity um, more than it being a plan for Chicago. I think it was more of a how can I get this group of players uh, to fit together the best because these guys are the ones that have to play tonight because we're playing in three days. Um, it is similar to the lineup that played in Pittsburgh, except in that game, Silva and Coria took turns, mostly Coria playing as the second forward. Um, there was a stretch of that game where they played alongside of each other, but a lot of the time it was more uh, of a 4-1-3-2. Uh, against Chicago, it was very clear that um, Arietta was on his own up front. Um, Coria and Silva dropped off. Um, I, don't, I don't really think it – I think it threw Chicago off. I don't think they were prepared for it. Um, I also don't know that it worked all that well, mostly because I think Coria and Silva kept looking for through balls and they kept looking to, um, you know, create a goal scoring chance every single time they were on the ball rather than connect passes and sort of, they were, they were kind of forcing it. Um, and there were times where they could have let it happen on its own. Um, it is funny that when you look at that midfield, you would expect it to keep a lot more possession than the normal United look. And, uh, I actually, during the as the game was approaching, told uh, Sean Spence, who we've had on as a guest here, he he runs Hot Time in Old Town, um, the Chicago Fire blog, that he should expect maybe a little more possession out of this group because that's the players are built to do that. And then what we saw was United ended up with like less than forty percent possession, and their pass their pass completion was pretty low, um, and it was because they kept looking to. Um, break Chicago from deeper in the field rather than break them down by with combinations and getting up um, closer to the Chicago goal. It was more like every time they got up, uh, got on the ball, it was look up and see if you can um, split defense and play someone in behind. Um, that's not how DC scored, but I think the combination of the formation, the players were at different spots than Chicago was prepared for, and then the approach to the game also seemed to kind of confuse Chicago a little bit. And um, to be fair, the fire looked a little confused in a game that they they needed. Uh, I mean, they're still in last in a league. We're talking about a league where Pablo Mastroeni has coached his team to 10 wins in 51 games, and there is a team lower than that team in, in the standings, and that is Chicago in dead last. So they needed this one, and I think – I don't know that the, the – Tactics were primarily responsible for that. I think Chicago could have found a, lo- a way to lose that game anyway. Um, but, but it certainly, it, the, for the first half hour, it seemed like the Fire were trying to figure out what they were up against. And if if that's a, a nice side effect from just putting together a good group uh, out of the reserves, then so be it. Yeah, given that we saw something like this against Pittsburgh and then saw it again, against Chicago. I wonder if this is something that Olsen's trying to fold into practice a little more so that it's basically a second look that, that the team has to throw out. I, there was a little part of me hoping that he was going to throw it out against Toronto as honestly a telegraphed tactical ambush mm. uh, for Greg Manny. Uh, obviously it didn't happen. They went back to the 4-4-2, Ben, and, and got the, the clean sheet that they wanted. And it, it was obvious that was all... DC United cared about going into that game and coming out of that game. They made no bones about 
the fact that they wanted the zero. If they scored a goal, great. If not, okay, a point's fine. Just don't let Jovinko do to them what he did back at RFK a few weeks ago. And they managed to get the job done. Yeah, and they were able to get the job done with a with the best performance that uh, Steve Birnbaum has had all season. He finally showed in this season what made him so special last season. He was able to show some speed off. He was able to uh, step up and block passes, block shots. Uh, my, I think my favorite sequence might have been when he uh, blocked Javinko's uh, shot twice on uh, the same sequence, and he just had a great game. He had a better game than Bobby Boswell. He was the best defender all night, and it really showed why Ben Olsen and even Jurgen Klinsmann has had so much faith in him. And other than that, Boswell played well. Uh, Taylor Kemp probably had his best defensive performance of the entire season, uh, this past game, uh, Corb was pretty good. Uh, he, he was probably better in the offense than the defense. Uh, he had some delightfully strange moments upfield where he was playing target forward or target fullback or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an amazing defensive performance. It was what we expected to see from United based on last season and, I mean, yes, I'm slightly disappointed in the offensive performance, but when you go into the second-best team in the East's house and you come away with – and you shut them down, you sh- shut down their offense completely, you can't complain too much about it. Yeah, and, and TFC are a team, were a team that, that was on form, too. They, yeah, and the, they and weren't the, the TFC from last year or even from – from the second month of this season, where they, they were just sputtering and they didn't know how to play together, they they've been obviously, on. They're obviously the sec, the like DC United and TFC are obviously the two best teams in the East by far. Yeah, right now I'm looking at the the standings and Toronto season third right now. They have four games in hand on the Revolution, who are in second, and trail them by one point. Yeah, exactly. That's despite not getting a result. If they had beaten United, they would be two points ahead of New England and have four games in hand. They'd have five games in hand on on DC United and be trailing by nine points. So getting a result there, keeping Toronto from winning the six-pointer was honestly a pretty huge result. Um, yeah, that, that, that's what happens when you have games in hand. You just want to make them drop all those points that they think they have when they have games in hand. Yeah, exactly, and DC United is not going to have games in hand on really anybody in the league for the rest of the year. Yeah, ever again. It's this schedule, man. This is something else. It's the opposite of 2011 when DC United had all of the games in hand on everybody and then choked them all out. Yeah, thank, thanks for bringing that up, Ben. That was a, that was a real nice memory. Re- remember when Joseph Nguyenia missed that shot against Portland? No, because I blocked it out. Jerk. Jason, anything else you want to talk about from these two games before we move our attention over to the Open Cup? Yeah, uh, I would, I would or, say... Or do you have any Joseph and Gwenya memories you want to talk about? Do not talk about Joseph and Gwenya <laughs> memories. Uh, he should have been switched to right back. Um, the, uh, the thing about this, the game in Toronto was that 
I think United uh, had moments where they felt like maybe there was a goal to be had, but most of those came in the first half. And I think after mm-hmm. halftime, once they saw the way things were going, um, it really became about settling in and making sure that you don't give up a goal. And it's telling that you know Josie Altador that the the report from Toronto was that he kicked the chair when he came off, not because he was angry at Greg Vanny, but because he was frustrated at how the game went. Um, Sebastian Giovinco uh, was fairly frustrated with the referee, with, with his own um, lack of final product. Um, so that's always a good sign when, when players like that are that upset. Um, it means you're doing something right. It was not a good performance on the other half of the field. Um, you never want to come out of a game with uh, – being outshot by by that many, I think it ended up being like sixteen, yeah, sixteen shots uh, more for Toronto. But if you look at the shot, like where the shots come from, most of Toronto's were outside the box. Um, and I think I'm, I'm pulling it up on my phone, and DC had seven blocked shots uh, out of Toronto. Toronto attempted eighteen, and seven of them were blocked, so they were challenge shots. They were very contested. Um, yeah, the teams actually the ended up even on shots on goal. Right. Because, yeah, uh, United blocked seven of Toronto's 18 shots, and eight yeah. of Toronto's shots went off target. DC United had four total shots, three of them on frame. Yeah, um, and, and, and people were talking after the game, and there, there were maybe people that didn't watch the whole game very closely, uh, maybe people that aren't following the two teams and are just observing as neutrals were saying, like, oh, Bill Hamid had another great game. Bill Hamid didn't have that much to do. Um, he did make some good saves, but it wasn't like he had seven and eight saves to make and he wasn't catching a bunch of crosses or having to come off his line and stop a bunch of breakaways. Um, this was not a busy performance for him, despite the fact that that many shots were attempted. Um, and that goes to the back four mode. Uh, Burnbaum was excellent. I thought Corb and Kemp, I, I, I feel like this was a game where Boswell was the worst of the defenders and he was still pretty good. Um, and if if he, if that level of performance is the worst defensive performance you have from a, a team that night, then you're probably not going to give up goals very often at all. Um, it is it would be awfully nice to meld that with a little more of a threat, um, especially after halftime, where it basically um, United did have Jairo Arrieta's uh, bicycle kick attempt that actually almost worked out, and then Chris Kanopka injured his ankle in the process of saving it, and all of a sudden for like 30 seconds it seemed like there might be a chance to steal this game in an even more egregious fashion than uh, at Orlando. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, to be to be fair, I think um, as frustrating as that was for Toronto, I think that that game probably merited 0-0 because Toronto didn't create enough good chances to beat Hamid um, overall. I mean, they created danger, but they didn't create actual tangible cha- chances um, very much so. Uh, it's it's a good thing to have uh, to keep in mind for the future. I mean, this is a team that will be looking at playoff games. We've we've seen in the last few playoffs what happens when DC goes away from home. Um, that's where the series has been lost in the last two playoff eliminations. Mm-hmm. Um, and a defensive performance like this means you're not going to lose because of your away performance. Uh, if you can shut a team like that down to that extent. They might get panicky. They might start throwing too many numbers forward, and all of a sudden you might actually come out of your away game with a win. Um, so it's something to keep in mind. It's it's a good show that they can do this without Sean Franklin, um, to do this with Miguel Aguilar playing some significant minutes. Um, 
and on short rest. Not, I mean, granted, most of those players were rested, but Boswell played back to back. So it, it's um, there's a good. There are things to feel good about. They're not the fun things. They're not the things that uh, make people fall in love with soccer. But they are part of the game. And if you want to win at soccer, these are things you have to do. Um, so as far as the um, the necessity side of soccer, it was pretty good. Yeah, one last thing before we move on, and you mentioned Arietta's bicycle kick, and normally when you think of a bicycle kick, you think of a, a hard-hit shot that you're not quite sure which direction it's going to go. This was the functional equivalent of a chip. He chipped yes. the goal. He tried to chip the goalkeeper with a bicycle. It was incredible, and it, which, it deserved to, to go in. Uh, just because of the audacity of it, and and I I, I think it, it obviously didn't deserve to go in because Kanapka got there and and knocked it out relatively easily. Yes, he he threw yeah. himself into his own net to do it, but but it was not a spectacular save. It's not going to be up for save of the week or anything. Right. But chipping the goalkeeper with a bicycle is just beyond description well, for me. It's it has- wonderful. It has precedent for DC United. Uh, DC, uh, Jaime Moreno uh, in the uh, Copa Sudamericana. Uh, people might remember him chipping Chiva. Will they, uh, will, will they remember that? Uh, if you were around at that time and you were watching the Copa Sudamericana game, you that that goal is burned into your mind um, because it was from uh, outside the box as well, um, and it briefly had DC United about to win in a South American competition, uh, which. MLS teams have, have not done because we're the only ones to even get into official South American competition because everyone else is terrible. Well, that's true. Hooray us. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah, let's, let's also turn our attention. Go ahead. Oh, man. Let's turn our attention now to the future. DC United will travel to Philadelphia. Get used to the phrase, DC United will travel, by the way. Uh, DC United going to Philly. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, because why the hell not? Let's play on a Tuesday. Uh, 7 p.m., the game will be on YouTube. This is for the U.S. Open Cup. What are we now, in the round of 16, or are we in the quarterfinals now? The round of Mullers, the round of Khaleesi, round of the round of... 16. <laughs> thank, thank you, Jason, for that. <laughs> um Philly trying to do their best impression of DC United circa 2013. Uh, Hashtag nope. (laughs) Uh, Can we do hashtag noop to to take off of their hashtag dupe? Never mind. Uh, Philly trying to do well in the Open Cup while doing horribly in the league. Not quite the historic levels of either that DC United managed uh, a few years ago, but they're 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 doing their damnedest. Uh, that said, they're using a very different strategy to handle their match congestion, and they've had fixture congestion similar to DC United for the last month, where they've just been playing. It seems like every third day, playing a game. Uh, Philly has, but whereas DC United has been rotating in guys like Facundo Coria, Miguel Aguilar, Marcus Halsey. Uh, Kofi Opare putting Birnbaum out on on at fullback to spell Taylor Kemp or Chris Corb and the injured Sean Franklin. Uh, Philly has not been doing that. They've basically been using their first choice eleven day in and day out, two games a week for the last month. Jason, does this mean we should expect them to run out a full choice a first choice lineup 
against United come Tuesday night? And will uh, they be on crutches at that point? Yeah, I don't. I don't really know what they're going to do because they're in a desperate spot because they the Union have not given up on this season because if you look at the standings, the East hasn't left them for dead yet. They are in the rearview mirror, but they are not gone yet. Uh, they're still is, there. They're still a speck in that rearview mirror. Right, which is um, really an indictment of all of the Eastern Conference's teams except for us and, and Toronto, I guess. Uh, you can you can say that they're, it's not really their fault that this is happening. Um, but everyone else is to blame that the Union have any chance. And and the thing is, that it's Burr not Alter. even that of a chance. Um it's it's ridiculous, but uh, so they aren't giving up on they they haven't decided to punt regular season games in favor of the cup yet, which is unlike uh, in 2013 where it was clear that United was going to put everything towards the Open Cup because the MLS season was completely gone. Um, but that puts the Union in a tough spot with the cup because they don't they don't necessarily have the option of rotating in fresh players. Um, they don't really have the depth to improve their team. The part of their problem is they can't really rest guys and then get better. Um, they've had a couple injuries in a couple spots, um, which has actually helped uh, CJ Sapong, who is in great form right now. He wasn't starting before, uh, but Connor Casey is injured. Uh, Fernando Aristeguieta has a some sort of um, shin bone bruise or something like that. He's been out for a little while. Um, but Sapong has come in and has done really well after being brought in initially to be, um, I don't know why Philadelphia thought playing, that their original plan was to play Sapong and Andrew Wenger as two, two different target wingers um, on a team. I, I feel like that's a little too much. Um, but Sapong has ended up being better as, as the center forward in their 4-2-3-1. Um, they have been getting some minutes from guys like Fred has been getting in lately. Um and not as a starter, but as a sub. Um, Zach Pfeffer from their academy has been getting more and more starts lately, even though they still don't seem to know what to do with him because he's played multiple positions he shouldn't really be playing. Um, so they're kind of like us at fullback. Um, they've got three players they're rotating in constantly. Um, Fabinho, uh, Shannon Williams, and Ray Gaddis. Um, but, yeah, that, that I really it's an interesting lineup to try and predict because – They've got just enough injuries where the option of rotating a bunch of guys through just isn't there right now, um, unless they've been holding some of these players that have been injured back and they're going to gamble on playing all these fresh players who've been out for like a month all in the same game where they could all have injury relapses and end up in some sort of bizarre Seattle situation where they're finishing the game with seven players, which would be awesome and hilarious. And um, really, really know. Philly. That would be so unique. Yes. It would be a very union thing to end up uh, through poor preparation, just being like, oh, we, all of our players are out because we subbed them all, and now they're all injured. Um, but yeah, it it's been a strange watching them. They're a team that still needs certain players. They don't have, you know, United can rest Perry Kitchen and play Marcus Halstey. Um, they don't have that option for guys like Vincent Noguera, uh, for Chaco Maidana. When those guys are out, there's a massive drop off for the union and. They're going to have to choose on Tuesday night whether they want to, you know, risk playing without those players and then possibly blow it against what is going to, let's be honest, the team that played Chicago for United is going to be the team that plays this Open Cup game. Um, fans should not be surprised when, when that happens. Um, 
Except I, I think the only change would be Dykstra coming in. Um, yeah. I think he'll get in. Um, but the union have to choose, you know, their starters probably should be slightly favored against United's backups, but, uh, you know, Brian Carroll's 33 and he's been starting a lot lately. Um, How's Brian he probably can't 33. I feel uh, like he's, I, he has a TARDIS. Oh, okay. Mm, that'll, yeah. that'll do it. Um, you know, Nogueira can't play forever. Um, he gets kicked often enough as is. They have to rest him at some point. Um, it's it's a strange situation that they've put themselves in, um, but I guess that's what happens when you're clinging to playoff life, um, but also possibly at the point where it's like, well, should we just bag it and just go for the cup, or should we continue trying to compete on both fronts? Also, we only have, like, 20 fit players. At, um, least, at least in 2013, United was bad enough that, that early enough that they could just bag it and go for the cup, and hey, they won right. the cup. And, and it helped that the East kind of left them behind. Uh, right. If, if, if Union had gotten some help from some of these other teams and had been told, like, no, your season really is over. Um, but now they're still they're still in that, so you're telling me there's a chance phase. Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to end up in the worst of both worlds, failing out of the cup at some point, hopefully not on Tuesday, and then no. fa- failing out of the playoffs. Yeah, they're really not going to make the playoffs. They have one no, point no. per game right now. They have they're five wins in 19 playoffs. games. They're not going to It is worth playoffs. noting that the, the Union made the Open Cup final last year and actually had a chance to win that game in regulation. Um, they had a Wando-esque miss right before um, the end of regulation time and ended up losing uh, to Seattle soon thereafter. Um, well, th- then they should so, focus on the Open Cup because, uh, let, let's be honest, United, Toronto... NYCFC, New England, Columbus. Is Columbus? Are you counting them as a playoff team? I don't know if you can at this point. I'm counting um, them. I'm counting them as better than Philly. Are Are you counting him? Are you counting Kai Kamara by himself uh, as better yes. than Philadelphia? Yes. Because that's better, Kai Kamara by himself better is argument. better than all of Philly. I feel like Kai Kamara would design an excellent jersey if he had to run a team completely on his own with him as the only player. The jersey would Mon- be pretty sweet. Mo- Montreal. It'd be worth buying. Montreal is yeah. going to pass Philly. I mean... Oh, yeah. Uh, Montreal is adequate, so they're better than the Union. Yeah. yeah. Like, right now, Philly, right now I mean, the, Jim, the goal Jim Curtin, for Philly is Jim, to Jim finish Curtin, ahead of the fire. Jim Curtin, please don't listen to this before Tuesday, but the only the Open Cup is your only chance. I just want to talk about the metaphysics of asking someone not to listen to this <laughs> before <laughs> it, it's it's fun to think about it's it's like a, a a really deep line from true detective where it's really deep until you think about it then it's just silly I, I don't know about that I, I don't watch yeah. that show well you mostly are mostly because I don't have HBO well, you were missing out, my friend. There was a free preview weekend, so I got to watch the first episode apparently uh, last I'm, week. But the free preview I'm, is over. Apparently I'm not missing much on this season of True Detective. I, well, I, the first season was really good and had a lot of really wacky... Yes, I heard the first season. ...so deep good. lines. Um, I, I'm holding out hope that this season will, will get better. Because One of these days, the number of games we're playing is going to leave me bedraggled and drunk like Matthew McConaughey. Um, tearing up a beer can and talking about time as a flat circle and, and making little beer beer can people to illustrate my point. Um, is, 
is Don Carter. We're like a month from that point. I'm, I'm just really hoping that somehow this story ends with you driving a Lincoln spouting other faux philosophical nonsense. Is it a new Lincoln? That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah, it's a okay. brand new Lincoln, and you're just driving around talking will... in Matthew McConaughey voice. So wait, uh, so wait. Is, is, is Don Garber the Yellow King? Whoever makes the schedule is is the Yellow King at this point. <laughs> um, Don Garber. And I would just like to add to the people, the good people at uh, Lincoln Motors, if you would like to send me a car, I'll drive around <laughs> and say a lot of things. So, we will record the show. The three of us will pile into that Lincoln, and we will record the show. Yeah, in absolutely. the car. We'll if, if we drive around in a circle around RFK. If we get a free Lincoln, <laughs> I will totally drive up to DC for a free Lincoln. Let us know. All right. Filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> We're very easy to reach. More road games. That is what is up next. Oh, right. We have another one. Yeah. Well, there's, more, there's another road game to talk about, guys. This one actually qualifies as hashtag DCU after dark because United will be at the Seattle Sounders Friday night on Unimas, 11 p.m. Uh, so... Drink your coffee on Friday. Take a disco nap because it's a late one. Uh, these are two of the top three teams in the Supporters Shield race as we write, or as we record right now. And I believe that the Timbers are currently up three to one uh, with about a minute to go in in that game. At it's not Jeldwin Field anymore. What's it called now? Uh, Providence Park, Providence Park, something like that. Yeah, it's just Providence, Providence Park. Park. All right. Yeah. Uh, so the Timbers are going to win the game, which means the Sounders will remain third. It will not be a top two matchup, but it'll be pretty close to it. Uh, Sounders, including tonight, are a bit uneven in their form of late. They they crashed out of the Open Cup, also against the Timbers, also by multiple goals. They lost to the Quakes. Uh, at home and the Union on the road. Uh, ben, what what gives with the Sounders? Is this just Clint Dempsey, other than the, the U.S. Open Cup game, is this just Dempsey and Martins being gone, or is there something deeper to to the Sounders' problems right now? I mean, yeah, I think it's a little bit. I think it's a lot of bit, more than a little bit, of uh, Dempsey and uh, Martins being gone. But their defense hasn't been great for the – uh, for the, this whole season, uh, after last season where um, Chad Barrett was so great down the stretch. Chad Marshall. Chad Marshall, not Chad Barrett. Chad Barrett is also on uh, the Seattle Sounders but does not play defense. Uh, Chad Marshall was very great down the stretch, but uh, this season the uh, Sounders defense has not been as solid as it has been in the past, so that's uh, a part of the problem as well. But... um. We'll see what happens when uh, Dempsey is back against United. His uh, suspension for tearing up the notebook of the referee in the U.S. Open Cup is now over, at least for MLS. So he'll be back. He'll be rested. He'll probably probably be angry. So that's not great for D.C. United. But Abifemi Martins won't be back probably, so that'll be okay. Uh, and hopefully United can shut him down and... I mean, at this point, I'd be fine with a point. I'd be happy, delighted with a point. I mean, obviously, three points would be wonderful, but I'd be 
more than happy with a point flying to Seattle on short rest at the end of 13,000 games in two weeks. This freaking schedule, man. This is unreal. I, it really is a point that cannot be made enough how ridiculous this schedule is. And I know that, that some of it's down to making room for United's uh, Champions League knockout phase early in the season <laughs> and making said- room for the group stage in the fall when United has three games in all of September in the league and three games in all of October in the league. As we, like, said, before the, on. As we said before the podcast started, MLS could have moved one game from June to October and one game from May to September, and it still would have been just fine. Yeah, this is... this. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's basically two straight months of games every single day. It's, and then August is a, another shit show. Uh, now we have to put the mature tag on this, Ben. We're I was, I was trying to be we're disciplined. To. We're not going to. Motherfucker. <laughs> so Clint Dempsey is back from suspension after this game because MLS took the hard-hitting, virtuous stance of saying, stealing the, the notebook from the referee and tearing it up in a blatant attempt to intimidate and and one-up the referee is worse than absent-mindedly running into him and also an attempt to intimidate. I'm not, I'm not trying I'll, to I'll, excuse Fabiana Spindle, but Clint Dempsey, what he did is it's not also, half as bad. It is more than half as bad. It's also worse than headbutting another player during the Open Cup. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, Blanco headbutted a staffer for DC United. He punched Clyde Sims. <laughs> um, Let's be clear with our violence here. Yes. No, but, but uh, Dempsey's, Blanco... Dempsey's suspension is is worse than that because his U.S. Open Cup suspension is for six games in the Open Cup or oh, no. two years, whichever is longer. No, hold on. That is the Blanco suspension. That's the same oh, one. Oh, that's the same. The difference okay. is that MLS, back when Blanco attacked everyone... MLS said, this happened outside of MLS competition, so it's not our problem. And so Blanco got to play, like, three days later um, without any punishment from the league. In this case, I guess MLS has decided that, um, you know, because of dis- disrespecting referees is is worse than physically attacking people. I don't know. Who um, are not referees. It's just a different era, and so there's more, you know, People weren't watching the DC Chicago Open Cup game. I don't even think it was on YouTube or streaming anywhere. Whereas this game, I listened. To, I listened to Tony Lamarzi call that game. Right. So, so you listen internet on the radio. radio. Right. First, um, first, first game had probably like a thousand people watching it. First filibuster podcast guest ever, Tony Lamarzi. Yeah, that's him. Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, I watched that game from like the 70th minute on, so I got to see all of all of what happened. It was all preposterous from uh, start to finish, um, but uh, I guess it's just a different era, and there's a little more. There are a few more eyeballs on the league, and thus you have to act a little differently. And so, stealing from the referee, I don't even think Dempsey wanted to intimidate. He just wanted to express how little respect he had for the referee by saying that if you're going to write this down, it doesn't matter. Uh, what you write doesn't no longer counts in uh, in the my world. Time is um, a flat circle, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I. Honestly, I thought it was hilarious. Um, in the in the, the whole thing had descended into chaos anyway, so you might as well also have uh, the captain of the U.S. national team shredding a referee's notebook as if that's going to stop him from administering cards. 
Um, whereas the Blanco thing was not hilarious. It was just a guy assaulting people. So my original point wasn't actually about yes, the, sorry. the discipline. <laughs> it was about no, the I fact wanted... that Clint Dempsey is back from his uh, and this ridiculously test. inadequate three-game suspension. He finished the third game of that tonight. It uh, definitely should have been Portland. four games. Yeah, totally should have been four games, let's be honest. <laughs> um, is he, without, even without Martins and without Ozzy Alonso, both of whom are injured right now, is having Dempsey back going to make that much of a difference for the Sounders? Yes. Um, I yeah, would that, say, that was a softball. That was a softball question. Um, I would say that it changes a lot about what they do. It's not just missing two good players, or one good player um, in this case. Um, what happens with Seattle, what their whole, their whole game plan is based around those two players being so terrifying to have to defend that they have a low goals against because teams are so terrified of playing and that they sit deep to try and stop those two players. It affects the rest of the game all over the field. Um, and with only Dempsey, they lose, you know, Martins is a tremendous athlete. He's fast. He's physically strong. He has, he's maybe, he has maybe the best balance in the entire league. Mm-hmm. Um, he's incredibly difficult to knock off the ball. Um, all of those things to add up to make it much more... It's not just the step down in skill that they end up with. I assume Lamar Nagel ends up, though Chad Barrett's coming back, to, he came back tonight, so maybe he plays and Nagel moves to the wing. But either way, those guys are re- re- reasonable MLS backups, but uh, Seattle no longer can approach the game in the same way. They can't say, let's just go attack and see what happens because we'll just outscore whoever we're playing. Um, and whoever we're playing will be scared of us. Um, when they don't have Martins or Dempsey, it changes things. Uh, and I think Martins is actually the more important player. Um, they can find invention uh, from other guys, from Marco Papa, but the physicality that Martins brings to go with the skill set that he has, it really changes things for, for Seattle. And I'm, I'm interested to see what they really do because uh, they've got uh, – They've got the week off, so they've got time to think of what they're going to do, whereas we don't because why would we ever have time off? Um, they, they're off this week because of the Open Cup loss. Um, so they've been playing with only one forward until tonight. Uh, they were playing with uh, just one forward because of the lack of options. We're probably going to see Marco Papa. Um, I assume they're going to try. They're going to take advantage of the fact that United is tired, so they're going to attack, attack, attack. They won't be as sharp, um, and it might be a little more based around Dempsey. So a lot of it just becomes for United. It's going to become crowd Clint Dempsey at all times, make him frustrated. Maybe he's still angry in the wrong way. Maybe he still wants to refer, you know, go back to that referee and continue ripping other things of him, uh, other possessions of his up. Um, maybe he'll be in an irritated mood. Um, we saw United frustrate two big-name players uh, just just uh, yesterday, so they might be able to do it again, but it's going to be an awfully tall order flying cross-country with some number of players having played some number of minutes in Philadelphia in a cup match, and we know how D.C. versus Philly in the cup usually goes. Um, it's usually... There, someone someone will have And also has overtime. Um, so... It's going to be a big challenge even without Martins. It's just going to be a different challenge. United doesn't have to sit as deep uh, in uh, in a defensive shell to deal with those strikers if it's Chad Barrett, but 
it's not. I mean, Barrett scored nine goals last year, and Nagel I think had seven or eight, including um, Barrett had the game winner against DC United. Right, he's the kind which, of guy you don't want to sit deep against because he's going to win the aerial battles. Right, and the thing, the funny thing about that game is that just like this year, United will go into it having to rest or be without several starters. Um, both teams played that game short players because of a game uh, a few days before. This time, Seattle will have the the rest, and United won't. So um, it would be awfully nice to play them at full strength, but it looks like to get to that point, we're going to have to go to the final of MLS Cup to get that opportunity, um, which is irritating, uh, to say the least, but I guess that is the lot MLS has decided to deal us, is that you just you have to tie one arm behind your back all year long. Well, that's, that's you know, the league is really trying to promote the Champions League, and the way to do that is to handicap teams that are in it. It helps. Everyone feels better when they play their whole season without getting to see their best team as a group ever. <laughs> and yet it's still have like an 11-point lead over the entire Eastern Conference. I mean, before the Toronto game, uh, the why it wasn't just me. There was a lot of people saying, like, oh, this is a strong lineup for United. It wasn't a strong lineup. We're missing, like, three starters. Um, and but, we were still, like, compared oh, to other good lineups lineup because, this year, that's a yeah, strong lineup. The, the way this season has gone, if we're missing three starters, it's like, Still, that's pretty good, right? Like, that's anything better than, like, six normal get. starters. Hey, right. rem- remember when Michael Farfan? God. Yeah, my, yeah, don't forget right. Michael Farfan is on this team. Um, and it uh, would have been awesome if he were healthy for this run of games because, let's face it, he's pretty good. Um, technically, Eddie seen... Johnson is still on the team. Yeah. He can't um, play, but he's technically on the roster still. Which which raises issues as to well, what they maybe. plan to do with that. We have no base. we have no idea if he's actually still on this roster. Just co- according to internet websites, right. he's still on this roster. Right. He was now, on the roster to start the season, and now we're and all has sad. Obviously, played zero minutes. That's what I'm here for, Ben, to make everyone sad. And I thought that was just, usually me. <laughs> well, I'm I'm owning it right now, and I'm going to just right. take us further down that road. By by saying the name Jill Ellis, goats! Yay! <laughs> That's right, folks. It's time to talk women's World Cup. The U.S. women's national Although, team made it. Is it really? Is Jill Ellis really that bad now? Oh, there's going to be a lot of profiles about her if she manages to win uh, on on Tuesday night. That one's also on Tuesday, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. At the same time as the Open Cup game. Thank you, schedulers everywhere. Oh, I will this watch isn't even. We can't even blame this one on MLS. This is just. This is Philly. percent on Philly. And anyway, no, no, because if we if we played on for Wednesday, then we wouldn't be able to play on Friday. But they didn't have to make it at the same time. Anyway, back back to my transition, which we I don't was, have to play on Friday, which was going so well. My transition into this was going so well, you was guys. It? It was. I'm choosing to believe it was. <laughs> the women's national team are into the semifinals of the World Cup. They will face Germany there. They, they're they through uh, by virtue of a one nothing win over China. Uh, despite the score only being one to nothing. Ben, this was by far the best performance of the tournament for Jill Ellis' side. Yeah, they were really great. Um... Morgan Bryan came in in the middle and played well alongside Carly Lloyd. Um, 
Kelly O'Hara was actually somewhat of a right midfielder, which was the first time they actually had somebody who might have been a right midfielder start at right midfield. Um, yeah. Oh, well, I guess she played, but yeah. But, um, yeah, they played well. Uh, it, they pressed the hell out of yes. China. That Amy, was, that was Amy, the defining characteristic yes. of this game. It's just high pressure for 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It was awesome. Having Amy Rodriguez up top instead of Abby Wambach was the epitome of that high press. Uh, she probably should have had a goal early on, but even That's without that... You can you can drop the probably. She domoduroed that shot. That was, sure. She domoduroed that pole game where she was just the fastest player on the field wreaking havoc and uh, then having no end product. I, th- I think she was better than Damo Duro usually is. I think she she pressed the hell out of China in the quarterfinals of a World Cup. I don't see Damo Duro okay. doing anything in the quarterfinals of a World Cup. Okay, but, that's, uh, that's right. That's correct. But uh, yeah, overall, the, the, that was the best performance that the uh, women's team has had in the entire World Cup. And it it, it has... The, the U.S. in an interesting position going forward in this game against Germany. I mean, the the popular narrative is that Jill Ellis is the coach because uh, allegedly she is at the whim of some of the older and more influential players, but some of those players were suspended, some of those players were just outright benched, and it'll be interesting to see what Ellis does in this semifinal match if I mean, it's the World Cup. She can do whatever she wants. It's not like she's going to have any repercussions because it's not expected that she's going to be the coach after this anyways. So we'll see what happens. So, Jason, I have a little bit of a hot take lead for, for okay. my question for you. Oh, Jesus. With the high press and everything, we know that Abby Wambach wouldn't have been able to do it. But the the team also moved the ball really, generally really well and really quickly through midfield, it wasn't the same plotting, knock it around and then just knock it long when when that doesn't work. Strategy of the last, you know, rest of the tournament. Um, was having Rapino, who typically doesn't move the ball quickly when she's on the wing. She likes to take the ball, collect it, square herself up, square herself up and take someone on 1v1. And, and Lauren Holiday, they were both out for this game. Did missing them make the performance we see, we saw possible. Were they actually better without Rapino and Holiday? Is my question. Is their absence the cause for them being better? Uh, I would not say their absence is the cause. I would say that um, their absence forced uh, Jill Ellis to make some choices that should have been made a while ago um, by having a natural wide player somewhere in the midfield. Um, and not just a wide player, but... Um, a wide midfielder. Tobin Heath is a winger. Um, she needs to push high up the field. She would actually be perfectly fine playing in a 4-3-3 um, as one of the wide forwards. Um, in a 4-4-2, her game isn't it's not as well suited to the formation. Um, her and Rapino both being in the game means they're both going to be, at some point, trying to come inside rather than playing crosses. Um, Kelly O'Hara stayed wide. Uh, and was out wide doing wide midfielder things, which uh, it turns out is kind of useful, especially to balance having someone that wants to come inside all the time. It's nice to have both of those looks on either side so that you can mix it up. You can say, okay, coming inside isn't working. Let's try and work the ball to the other side of the field. And um, 
move it down the wing and put in some crosses, things like that. Um, it also opens up a lot of space. Um, the other thing is just that uh, Morgan Bryan is a better fit as a defensive midfielder than Lauren Holiday, and it's not because she's a better player than Lauren Holiday. She isn't, but she's better at their role, and that team desperately needs somebody who is comfortable in that position, staying underneath the midfield, being always being an outlet, and moving the ball along quickly when she gets it. Uh, Brian did not keep a lot of the ball. It was always one and two touch. Um, she, she kept the tempo moving at a higher pace. Um, Holiday as a playmaker, when she gets the ball, she relishes the time to get her head up and look around and see what her options are. Um, Brian has some attacking midfield qualities, but in this role, she knew what her job was, and it was to keep the ball moving. Don't spend time looking for new options. Don't spend time trying to create and assist. Don't try and force anything. Um, and I think, in all honesty, that when Holiday comes back, the thing I'd like to see, if, if the formation has to stay, and it's become obvious that it's not going anywhere regardless of what we think, um, then the best fit, uh, the best central midfield fit is actually Brian and Holiday, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, Carly Lloyd is more of a goal threat, but this team doesn't necessarily need goal scorers. It needs... Um, a little bit more creativity, and Brian would provide the outlet um, to free up Rapino and Holiday to go forward instead of it having instead of having a midfield where everyone is trying to create uh, and everyone wants to get an assist. Um, this is a case where you need somebody who's saying, you know, I'll do the, the other stuff. I'll set the groundwork in place so that you can do this. Um, we're not going to see that. Uh, prepare yourself to see um, the same ill-fitting midfield against Germany. And you can be sure that Sylvia Nide has watched every U.S. game a bunch of times and has already planned on how she's going to dismantle that midfield because it doesn't make any sense. Um, and unlike the U.S., the Germans appear to be pretty well-drilled. Um, there's a tactical plan in place. They have a they follow certain patterns of play that make sense for their personnel. Even with um, uh, Jennifer Marozan being injured, I don't think she's going to play for Germany. It's still, it's not going to really affect their game plan that much. Um, we can always hope that Ellis is convinced by the game tape to finally to see the light and say, I need this player that's willing to sacrifice for the rest of the midfield so that the rest of the midfield can be their best. Um, and it's a situation where you have to choose the, the tactics over individuals. I mean, Holiday is definitely one of our best players. Carlo is one of our best players. But in this system, one of them has to sit. There isn't room for both of them. Um, this is a problem that, uh, for England fans, you, uh, you may have remembered years and years of Gerard and Lampard um, not fitting together as a duo. Um, it's a similar issue. You've got two great players who don't match each other, and you want to keep playing 4-4-2. Some, something's got to give. Uh, either you figure it out and you adapt and you deal with the fact that someone who's excellent is not starting, or you lose. Um, and that's what Ellis has to confront over the next couple of days is that this team is better with Brian in that, that defensive midfield position, and she has to either say, I acknowledge that, or she has to say, I'm going to put my best 11 on the field regardless of tactics, and that'll be that. Important right. to note that that's what England did, and England lost. Yes, Eng- England lost a lot, and we all had a good laugh at their expense, but now the shoe is on the other foot. Are, are you sure that we can't magically teleport Crystal Dunn into this team and have her play in central midfield? 
I mean, even if we magically teleported her to the tournament and and got her, you know, changed the paperwork so that her name legally appeared in the squad registration and gave her someone else's jersey number, even if we did all that, Jill Ellis would be like, oh, Crystal Dunn, you're on the bench, uh, regardless of the fact that you're in incredible form and you keep scoring ridiculous goals. It, n- none of that matters. Um, <laughs> irrelevant. It, it, just like Kelly O'Hara, she she and or not Kelly O'Hara, um, Heather O'Reilly, Heather O'Reilly. Who, uh, briefly appeared. Uh, which was awesome to see, even though uh, unfortunately she did not like score three goals on her own and force force her way into the lineup regardless. um, In her four-minute cameo. Right. She she had to score basically a goal a minute to uh, give herself even a tiny chance of getting more time. Um, But, uh, yeah, the, the evidence was clear that, yes, it's China. They're not very good. They sit back. Of course, the U.S. is going to try and press them a little bit. Um, but the evidence was still clear that these parts fit together better. Um, and you're not thinking about – this isn't like a pickup game where you're just trying to have the best players. You're trying to put together the best 11-person team. And this was a better 11-person team, even if the talent level of the individual players wasn't quite as high. Um, and Ellis is going to have to decide whether she wants to bank on the individuals pulling the U.S. out of the fire despite their tactics or if she wants to actually put a team that matches the tactics sort of on the field, because it, keeping in mind, it, sort, it just sort of, it doesn't really, they don't really fit the tactics perfectly, it's just better. Yeah. As Kevin McCauley wrote for SB Nation recently, there's nobody on the team that actually fits the required tactics in central <laughs> midfield on this yeah. roster, because Jill Ellis left all of them at home. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of good NWSL defensive midfielders, a lot of teams in NWSL play um, with an anchor midfielder, um, with a traditional defensive midfielder, and all of them were left behind. It's crazy. Yeah, so... Kyle Beckerman? <laughs> I mean, he's already got long hair. He just needs to shave, and maybe he could, he could pass. Um, Jason, you mentioned that Germany is watching Jill Ellis' midfield and taking notes and, and figuring out a way to beat it. Until this game against France, I was convinced that Germany was actually uh, a, a run entirely by a computer algorithm and that doing <laughs> random crazy things would actually be the way to beat it, kind of like uh, a, a human was able to beat uh, a chess computer by just making random moves and completely confusing the computer because it didn't have the, the random stupid move strategy in its data bank. Um, but, but this game against France, they actually looked human. They, they actually looked like the lesser team against France. Um, so that strategy, I think, will probably not work because Germany, it turns out, is flesh and blood and, right. and not, not robots. Uh, I've never been so disappointed that the opposition is not robots. Um, so, so my question is, is how should and how will, you know, combine those into one question if you want. How, how will and how should the U.S. approach Germany in this semifinal? Well, um, I think we, the French were playing 4-4-2. They were playing it differently from the U.S., but they were playing with only four midfielders against Germany's uh, 4-2-3-1, um, and they managed to make it work by getting the ball out of the middle and forcing the, the wingers to uh, do some defending. Um, 
forcing them to deal with the fact that the wide midfielders for France were cutting in. They were cutting in, but they weren't cutting so far in that the central mid, the clog of central midfielders uh, was able to make an impact. Um, France also just moves the ball very quickly. Um, they're an excellent team. Like They don't have any players that aren't tremendously skillful. Um, they all work together really well. Um, there is some hope in the fact that, much like uh, the U.S.'s best attacking midfielder in this tournament has been Megan Rapinoe playing on the left. Luisa Nassib played very well against Germany, cutting in from the left. She probably should have won the game for them, um, which is kind of sad because she did so much. See, she, she did so much other, uh, so many other good things, but she might be remembered instead for a miss very early in the game, um, and then again later. Um, but that's that's something interesting is that the midfield, the wide midfielders cutting in works. Um, France's midfield actually works more like DC United's. Um, they play with a flat a flat central midfield rather than staggering them. Um, the difference here is that the French have players suited for those roles. Um, the U.S. does not, uh, and they aren't going to switch. They aren't going to switch the way they play. That even if the midfield flattens out, it's still going to be one where Lauren Holiday has to drop off and Carly Lord always goes forward. Um, the French, it's much more of a balanced midfield where the front four really get a lot of freedom because there's always two holding midfielders. Um, but a major thing uh, that the French did that we can replicate is getting a forward to peel wide and pull players out of position. Um, the French got in behind repeatedly by sending a forward out to the wing, creating an overload, and then getting in behind there with some speed. Uh, that's actually what Rodriguez did really well against China. Yeah. The problem is, of course, that you don't expect Abby Wambach to be set to, to sit out. Um, Rodriguez has her limitations. Um, Sydney LaRue is actually capable of playing that role, but it seems like she has been sort of become she's become an afterthought in the last couple of games. Um, but somewhere in there, you've got to find somebody. That, if Alex Morgan, if if Wambach comes back, then Alex Morgan has to take that role of running out of the middle and making a lot of runs that peel out wide and give the wide midfielder somebody to combine with. Because if it's just, you know, Megan Rapinoe, go it alone out there by yourself, that's not going to work. She needs somebody to play off of. And if Morgan has to play that role, it's not really her the best use of her abilities, but someone's got to do it um, for this to work. And if Wombat comes back in, then Morgan is going to have to do it. Um, and she'll probably run herself to tiredness and have to be replaced by somebody else who can do the same thing. Um, Germany didn't really look comfortable dealing with that, but, I mean, it's not a... The, the French did a very good job of it. It wasn't just like this tactic automatically works. You have to execute at a high level. Um, but that's the two major things that I would take from this game is the central midfield has to be more of a double pivot than a, a st- the staggered look we've had. And someone from the front line has to get wide to help the wide midfielders combine because I think that's where Germany's beatable is at the fullback positions. I don't think they're particularly special in those spots. They don't have a Megan Klingenberg level player on either side. They don't have an Ali Krieger. Um, and that's where you have to get after them because otherwise, eventually, you know, Germ- what Germany did against France for a long time is kind of a stereotypical Germany. They hung on and hung on for a while, um, they got their goal. And then they won on penalty kicks because uh, somehow international soccer always lives up to that stereotype. Um, but that 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 should give the heart to the U.S. because the U.S. can see that 
Germany Germany previously looked like they were just going to rip everyone apart. I mean, they they ripped Sweden to shreds, and Sweden previously frustrated the U.S. to no end. But all of a sudden, France opened the door and said, you know, this team actually could give up some goals. Um, you just have to do certain things at a high level. And the U.S., for, for all of our complaints, still has a, a tremendous amount of talent. They can do this. They can win this game. They just have to do certain things very well, and they have to do them a lot. And it's just a matter of will the coaching staff alert them to these things or will they just say, uh, I don't know, let's keep doing what we're doing. And in which case, you know, expect a very frustrating uh, Tuesday evening. Uh, the other semifinal is Japan and England. Um, it, it feels like that's going to be the much... It, the, this semifinal, the U.S.-Germany one, is the one that feels like a final. But Japan might... They, they're definitely the most fun team to watch. Uh, if you don't... If you like watching build-up and intricate soccer, they're, they're an incredibly technical team and really, really good to watch. Um, but but it does feel like USA Germany is is the the champion in waiting. Um, go Japan. There you go, Ben. I was going to ask if you had any last input before we we sign off for the night. But but since you threw that in, I think maybe that's I'll my, just skip to the ending. That's my input. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this um, fourth or fifth consecutive supersized edition of filibuster. Eventually we will lose the weight. I promise we will slim back down to an hour long show. Um, but it just not yet. There's not too many sweets just, on the menu just right now. July when we're, we're, uh, hunting for subject matter. Well, we'll, find, <laughs> we'll, we'll go on an hour and a half long diatribe about something or other. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, We'll keep the supersized edition going for an extra week just to show that we, we can, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Find us at blackandredunited.com or on Twitter at filibusterdcu. Uh, the website, Black and Red United, is at blackandredu on Twitter. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. We accept love letters. We accept hate mail. We accept advertising inquiries. We accept really whatever you want to send to us. Uh, if we like it, you Free might even get on. SUVs. Yes, or or even Lincoln sedans. We're not picky. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Free cars. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. Find us on SoundCloud. Make sure you tell your friends about the show. That is uh, really the the coolest thing to us is when we we find out that people are talking about the show and saying nice things. It makes us all cry like we're dads watching Pixar movies. Um, and and for those of you wondering, yes, dads watching Pixar movies, we cry. It's true. It, may, it, it hits us right in the feels. For Jason and Ben, I'm Adam. We will talk to you real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason. <laughs>